Welcome to Ask an Innovator, where we interview senior executives about innovation. You can find us at askaninnovator.com or subscribe with your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Josh Barker, CEO of City Innovation Labs. Today I've got with me Joe Renz. He's the Managing Director of New Mobility Studio. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. So today we're going to be talking about innovation. And we, Joe and I were just talking about some interesting things with products, smart products. We have a, There's a big sign up. I know a lot of you, no one can see it, but we're talking about it. Product system, we'll probably put it on the website so other people can see it. And systems of systems. So uh, love to dive in. But first of all, I just want to ask you the question. We always start with, what is innovation to you, Joe? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And uh, I've given it some thought. It starts with an idea. And this is what we do at Rocket Wagon Venture Studios. And then we turn it into a solution so we're solving a problem, but it's solving a problem not in our own mind or in the entrepreneur's mind, but it solves a problem that a consumer, a customer appreciates. So from the perspective, not of you as the innovator or you as the entrepreneur, but you're finding someone who's willing to consume this solution in one way, shape or form, use it. And then obviously most importantly, also pay for it because ultimately we all are in this to make some money ideally also do some good but even that goes back into the customer's perspective right people don't use solutions unless they feel have a clear understanding how that solution will help them or help the environment in the case of global warming maybe or any other congestion we just talked about how hard it was for you to come across town etc etc so that's the turning that idea into a solution that adds value from a customer's perspective Mm. is innovation for me yeah, that's great. Now, now I'd, I'd love it as well if you'd give a little bit of background about yourself and a little bit of background about New Mobility Studio and some of the things you're working on. They're pretty cool stuff. Yes, uh, certainly. I, so I'm born and raised in Stuttgart, Germany, which uh, is a very famous uh, car town. We have the headquarter for Mercedes and Bosch, a lot of the other big suppliers. And uh, I went to engineering school after uh, an internship, or we call it... Uh, uh, training for skilled worker over in Germany uh, at Eastman Kodak. And Eastman Kodak was the first time where I experienced disruption. Uh, at the time, I wasn't as conscious about it as I am today, but Kodak famously invented the digital camera in mm-hmm. the 70s that ultimately put them out of business. And today, Kodak is a patent-holding uh, uh, structure that's left. Mm-hmm. But they invented it, but then they, they couldn't materialize the opportunity and that's so much investment in the analog way of the world. And this is interesting now when you fast forward to new mobility, the incubants, the inventor of the vehicle like a Mercedes or uh, the uh, inventor of the modern vehicle like a Ford with the assembly line, everybody is getting disrupted at the moment. And what we're seeing at this point in time is the largest disruption that the automotive industry has seen since the invention of the of the assembly line. So after my training at Kodak, I went back to school to become an engineer. That's also the first time I was able to come to the United States uh, for my internship, which I did at Bosch here outside of Chicago. And then uh, I finished my studies at the European Center for uh, Particle Research, CERN. Mm-hmm. And then I went uh, to do some postgraduate work in Sydney, Australia for a Master of Systems and Control Engineering. And so I spend a good time 
of my life in school, but I also wanted to make sure to have a diverse background from a cultural perspective with Europe, with Australia and with the United States. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in my mind, I was convinced that I'm going to end up in the automotive industry because all my vacation jobs with Mercedes, uh, due to my skills, I was able to work uh, on the maintenance team in the assembly lines. There was not a lot of doubts in my mind that I'll be working either for an OEM or a TO1. So OEM is an original equipment manufacturer or the TO1s are the suppliers that mm -hmm. supply parts to the vehicle like Bosch and ZF and Continental. And uh, synchronicity struck when I came back from Australia. Um, I, they didn't hire me and I ended up in IT and in IT specifically around enterprise resource planning. Uh, I joined a smaller organization which gave me a great opportunity because uh, I could see how a company really works after I've been in these big companies, the Codex, the Mercedes and the Bosch's. Now I'm working for an IT organization with at the beginning 30, maybe 40 employees. But it also gave me opportunities to get involved in projects that I would normally not get involved in, travel a lot with my general manager and founder at the time. We started doing some interesting work until we got acquired by Computer Associates. And that was an interesting journey as well, because when I started at CA, we were still on emails that were on the mainframe, and we just moved over to the client server world uh, in the subsequent years. And what I had the opportunity over 17 years was to see how the IT industry went from a mainframe to client server, to the cloud, the emergence of the commercial use of the internet, et cetera. So we saw a lot of uh, interesting disruption I took all these learnings that I had over those years um, into my uh, self-employment uh, upon my return back to Chicago after stunts in the north of Germany, went to Frankfurt, Long Island, New York, where our headquarters uh, is or was, uh, came out back to Chicago, went back to New York, then went back to London, and then I ended up back in Chicago. And here in Chicago, it's uh, 2010 that I returned. I started to see the emergence of 1871. This was not exactly in 2010, a little bit yeah. later. And I found myself being out after work uh, at meetups and meeting interesting people, you know, and I thought, hey, when if not now, am I going to partake in this emerging ecosystem? Because here in Chicago, we're not the Valley and we're not the East Coast. And I don't think we need to be, but we're very, very unique in a lot of different yeah. ways. And in particularly in, uh, you know, if it's a, a smaller pond, I thought, hey, this it doesn't have to be Silicon Valley. It can just be here at the Chicago ecosystem. We have enough success stories. And so uh, in 2013, I started uh, my own business. And a couple of months later, my brother joined, who's out in Seattle. And so we started working initially on various different opportunities. I, I was compared to dating. You have to be out there and you never know who you're going to meet. Yeah. But you have to be out there. So I'm out, you know, five nights a week meet up here, meet up there, meet some folks, et cetera, and start building a network. It's not what you know, but who you know. Yes. I would take it a step further and say, it's who knows you. Mm. So if people talk about new mobility and they think of me, I take that as a compliment. I launched a meetup group for connected vehicles, for example, that's still going and, and I've been involved in the Illinois Autonomous Vehicle Association. So opportunity came knocking and I obviously always embraced it because I want to do something here in Chicago. I want to do something in the state of Illinois. And so um, we got uh, going in new mobility in 2015. So this is back in the day when if you called someone and said mobility, they talked, they thought of cell phones, they thought yeah. of mobile devices. Oh, wow. 
And today, if you think about it, only four short years later, if you say mobility, everyone talks about driverless cars, they talk about autonomous vehicles, talk about connected vehicles, about smart cities, about services like Uber and Lyft. And, and it's just amazing, right, how this industry has, has really changed. And so we've been doing innovation consulting. Uh, we try to help large corporates with doing innovation. Um, and again, you know, if you're a hundred year old, car manufacturer, there's a lot of things that you're doing extremely well. Clearly, you wouldn't be around for 100 plus years if you wouldn't be doing something right. right. But uh, these new opportunities that are emerging, if you think of the iPhone, you know, less than 11 years old, if you think about that, 11 years, right? For a luxury vehicle from board approval to getting on the street, we're talking about seven to nine years. So imagine in one of those S-Class or 7 Series Beamer uh, BMW cycles, Apple releases, uh, you know, whatever, uh, I think they do two a year these days yeah. still, right? So they, they release 20 phones. And what's even more important is going back to my innovation definition. From a customer's perspective, an iPhone does not have a user manual. You know, my three-year-old very early on started using it intuitively, swiping left and right and clicking with her finger on this and tipping on that. And people are used to that now. And so when you sit in a vehicle, you know, when you travel a lot, you go into a different car uh, at the Hertz or Avis dealership every every day, every car is different, right? Even every Ford is different. Every Mercedes is somewhat different, right? And so uh, there's a lot of opportunity there, but the folks are starting to perceive the ease of use, the seamlessness as, as a, something that's very important. This is where this, what we call human-centric system of systems comes into play. Mm-hmm. An average vehicle today generates uh, in an hour a terabyte of data. Wow. And, uh, you know, what are we doing with this data? Some of them OEMs download the data uh, overnight. And then there's the big question of who owns the data, mm-hmm. etc. But when you then go to the next stage after a smart connected product, it's that product system. And that means it's a connected electric car ecosystem in, in our world of, of new mobility. And there Elon Musk really has so far led the thought process in a very, very efficient way. And what I mean by that is if you think to be able to produce a car, which is the traditional way of an OEM, right? Because an OEM does not build gas stations. An OEM does not build infrastructure like roads. It just builds the vehicle that operates on those roads and uh, uses gas stations. Elon looked at this and said, okay, I'm not going to just give people the car, but they also have to have an infrastructure where they can charge, ergo the supercharger network. And by the way, early on to incent people, he even let them charge for free, even though you could argue it's not free, it's just built into the price of the vehicle. Then we have the -the over-the-air update capabilities. So the, the car is in constant contact with the network, with the back office for the lack of a better term. Yeah. And Tesla can very clearly see how the car is being used, can very clearly see uh, who's using the car as well. And again, this is all with consent right. from the users who are a little bit more adventurous maybe and more supportive than the average car buyer or the car leaser wouldn't necessarily be. But uh, then they have this opportunity with over-the-air updates to give you a, not a brand new, brand new car, but uh, they enhance the capability of the vehicle on a pretty regular basis. So you get a notification that says, hey, you have a new update, you install it and your car behaves differently, uh, has different features. It's, it's quite amazing when you, when you experience it, you know. There was a, 
bad weather situation in Florida and over the air they updated the range of the vehicles and said, mm. hey, so you can get out of hurricane threatened uh, areas, you extended your range and things like that. And then if you think of the next, the final stage of the iterations, the system of systems. So if you think of a new mobility ecosystem, there is that connected car uh, ecosystem, but there's also energy, transportation, communication infrastructure. You know, when I hear people talk about, hey, if everyone goes home, at night and plugs in their car, the power companies cannot sustain that. You know, I just read something interesting where under the same logic, Germany is 1 million gas stations short. Because uh, if, if you assume that everyone goes gassing up at the same time, right? right. And so, and I'm, I know we innovation happens everywhere and happens all the time. So we will solve this problem too. You know, we will solve right. this problem with mobile batteries, which effectively an e-car is, has a huge capacity. And the average car sits 96% of the time in a parking lot, including my own. So this could easily be used as an intermediate st uh, storage facility. And frankly, I might even get paid for this. And so, you know, at, at peak times, you take my, uh, my power out of my vehicle. And at night, when I have excess power, it's cheaper sometimes to even get paid by the utility to take the power. You, you charge the batteries back up, right? And this can all be done in a system of systems when machines can talk to other machines, which again, is very important to me. I don't, as a consumer, do not want to be involved in this, not in the charging of my own vehicle and not in how my car is utilized by the network once I opted into it. I want to have control over what happens because I want to, so I want to opt in, but after that, it has to be seamless and it has to be what I call, um, it, it, integration is always a very tricky thing in technology, as we know. So I call it interoperable. Yeah. They just have to be able to talk to each other. Sure. How they do that, again, there's smarter people than I that can figure this out. But uh, it has to be seamless for me as an end consumer. Going back to this customer's perspective, is this really is innovation really valuable? Yes, it is. Because now... Uh, my, my third pillar would be on-demand mobility services. My Ubers, my Lyfts, other ways to get myself around. The, the scooters, the first mile, the last mile. We're not talking about a third dimension going up in the air. Different types of drones, different types of people moving. There's a lot of innovative ideas. And then last but not least, the digital content and e-commerce. So once this car drives itself, what do you do all, if you don't have to drive anymore? Now you can consume content. Now you can do other things. Yeah. But the basis of all of this, if you think about it, this is why the Googles of the world, the Facebooks, the Amazons are very, very strong and also at the moment very powerful is because they have understood very, very early that data is going to play a huge, huge role. Yeah. And uh, we, we talked about this before, but data is the new oil, says the economist. The CEO of Rocket Wagon Venture Studios, Don Deloach, says trusted data is the new oxygen. So we all live off oxygen. We can live without oil, but we can't live without oxygen. So trusted data in this world that really makes this system of systems work, how it interoperates, how it communicates, and how, what you as an individual or your avatar that represents you in that ecosystem electronically, how we deal with each other has to be uh, very, very uh, well-defined. And that's where one of the things that we are very excited about is what we call distributed ledger technology. So a lot of people heard, heard about blockchain. 
um, and uh, the most important thing for the listeners is that Bitcoin is not blockchain. So when you hear about Bitcoin, is this dark market or bad or whatever, the underlying architecture that makes Bitcoin work is what started with a blockchain. We're now in the third generation of this distributed ledger technology. And their technologies like IOTA out of Berlin, Germany, are building protocols that are specifically built for the machine-to-machine economy, for the Internet of Things, to allow a sensor, any battery-operated, electrically-operated device to have a wallet. And you don't have to charge. You can if you want to, but you can start moving data back and forth. And what is beautiful about the data is that, one, you know that the source is uh, authenticated by the network, and you also know that the data is has not been tampered with because you write it into this, what they have as a, ta- as a tangle. Other protocols use other technologies, but it's an immutable distributed ledger technology. And this is why a lot of the uh, companies are not looking into this. Some people perceive this to be the fourth version mm-hmm. of the Internet. And we at Rocket Wagon Venture Studios will certainly also look into uh, use cases where distributed ledger technology uh, can be used. Because the Internet of Things in general is still in the single digits of adoption, even though the the, the coin, the phrase was coined in 1999 by Kevin Ashton, if you can believe it. So now we are a good amount of time later. And the question always is, why are we not further along? And we really do believe that between machine learning, between artificial intelligence, between uh, big data, that there is this missing component. The missing component is what that DLT can do again, from the authentication of the source, as well as the assuring that the data is is really not tampered with in any way, shape or form. So if a brake sensor detects black ice at the corner of Wacker and uh, Michigan Avenue, we know that it, there's black ice and it's not a 14 year old kid in India who pretends to be a brake sensor on a, on a luxury vehicle. And those are the kinds of things that we need to ensure some cybersecurity risk from other aspects of it. Right. Wow, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot here. I mean, so for this, I'm looking at this poster here of the product, smart product, smart connected product, product systems, systems of systems, and the progression you kind of just talked about. Do you do you see this in any other, it's very tangible when you talk about a car. Do you see this in any other kind of industry playing out as well? So this is... This uh, diagram is a poor Heppelman diagram from a Harvard Business Review. Sure. Uh, and so this is adapted to the new mobility. And uh, Rocket Wack Adventure Studios has already launched two other studios. One is uh, network and telecommunications. Mm-hmm. And another one is the industrial internet of things. Mm-hmm. But we also see use cases in healthcare. We see use cases in a lot of other areas, smart cities, etc. And so to answer your question, this is applicable to a lot of things, because if you think about it, the Internet of Things, uh, and again, this is some for some folks that are listening to this, they'll say, okay, I have a rough idea what this really means. Some others might say, this is, sounds a little bit too crazy, but effectively, it's the physical world that we all live in and the virtual world. That connection is what Internet of Things ultimately will become. And if you think about, again, everything that's electrically powered in one way, shape, or form, will be connected and uh, connected in very 
different ways that we are connecting today. Because even if you think about the internet today, if I go back to my black ice example, the, the sensor picks it up. It, the sensor, however, is sitting on a brake pad that belongs to a Mercedes. You drive the Mercedes. So now Mercedes takes this data and, and brings it home to Stuttgart or some data center in the, in the United States, wherever it is. And then maybe processes it, maybe doesn't process it. But there's a, a, a latency in all of this. And so the relevance of this black ice information on Wacker in Michigan is, is going to be gone by the time um, some engineer can take a look at this. So what we propose instead is that this brake pad as its own economic agent, and this is somewhat a concept to wrap your head around, imagine it owns itself. It just sits on that vehicle, detects this ice, communicates this to the next lamppost and says, here is black ice at this exact location. And now this lamppost is starting to broadcast this to oncoming traffic. And now it's contextual because it's only relevant to people that drive on that specific day uh, around that specific time before the ice melted on Wacker and on, on, on Michigan. So if you drive in Chicago on any other road or you're, you're in Dallas, you don't care about this, right? right? You only care about it when you're there. And then you can say, so what is, is, is this worth something? And in some cases, this information could be worth something like a, an empty parking spot that you need on date night when you don't want your partner to be uh, getting into the rain, because again, it's contextual, it's a Friday night, it's a pricey restaurant, it's raining or it's very, very cold. The, the parking spot is worth more than on a Sunday morning at 2 a.m. outside of a sports stadium where the game was on Saturday. So you can now put a price on these things and, and you put it to a marketplace and we can start trading on this information. We can start trading this contextual wisdom with each other. And if you now say, okay, this is worth something, then the lamppost would have a wallet as well. And every car that comes by that consumes this data and reacts accordingly is paying in a microtransaction that lamppost a very small amount of money. This doesn't have to be a cent. This can be a fraction of a cent. Then with that m money that the lamppost makes, it can pay for the electricity that it consumes at night when it shines the light on, onto the street, right? And, and when you say non-mobility examples, we're sitting here in an office, we have four lights above us. These lights could theoretically charge you half and me half after this podcast is over for the hour that we actually used it, you know. So you really start using the resources going again back from a customer's perspective when they add value. Because the hour before and the hour after, these lights don't mean anything to you because you, you visited me. But while you're there, you obviously benefit from this. And so if you now imagine our entire economy being able to talk to each other and being fully integrated, you know, then we see a lot of huge opportunities. For example, here in Illinois, we just passed a big bill around, you know, doing some work on the bridges and on the roads and some of the other things of the infrastructure. But when I walk to work in the morning and I'm at fault too, right? I go to work between eight and nine o'clock. Okay, so if you ask me, Joe, why can't you go later? Because everyone goes to be in the office at nine. Right. How many of us really have to be at the office at nine? You know, why can't you be? But if I come to you and say, Josh, you know, and again, this has to be seamless. If I know you don't have a meeting, you don't need to be at work. And I see that your route of, uh, of going from your house to your office is currently very congested and it will take you forever to get there. And I know your preferences because your avatar 
obviously has the information and you permit that I use this data, I reset your alarm clock automatically to half an hour later and you get to the office at 9.30, but you, you have less CO2 emissions because the car that you're driving in is not going to sit in traffic. I know that's of importance for you, or I, I reroute you with a different alternative. Maybe I know you want to work out. So I say, hey, why don't you take a bike, a DV bike from A to B, and then from there you take the train. There's a lot of different ways, things we can do with data, but it has to be connected. And we have to be able to trust the data from the source perspective and the content of the data so we can make bigger decisions than just, you know, find out if it's what the weather is like tomorrow morning. Mm. So how, how long do you think that a lot of these progressions are going to take to get into the system of systems? I mean, we just talked about, you know, in, in a, a short years, we had the iPhone and, and the, these progressions through Tesla. And do you, how far, you know, on the spectrum of, we were just talking about the lights overhead, even charging me for that. How far do you think we are away from something like that, where all these systems talk to each other? So the answer, and I don't like to answer it that way, but it's always, it depends. Yeah. Uh, it depends on what country and even within the country, what city you look into. Yeah. And even then within the cities, I just learned of a project in um, a smart building in Japan yesterday where uh, it, it's an incredible amount of sensors that it has. And it knows, for example, that I go to work from nine to five. When I walk in, it knows it's me that's in the office. If someone else walks into my office, the system knows that and can then alert or not alert depending on the settings, right? But the lights turn off automatically. If, if you then start coming in out of sync or out of, uh, you never come before five and all of a sudden you come before five, these are all alerts that the system can ingest and then do certain, make certain decisions. Routing of the phone. It knows at five o'clock you hit the train, so it all, all calls go to the cell phone. Mm. Those things exist today. The Tesla is a good example, again, for a product system that exists today. Now, can everyone drive a Tesla? No. Um, clearly, they became more affordable now with the threes. Um, there's in the industry, in the industrial internet, there's a lot of uh, areas where we already see this technology being, being implemented and used. Um, so it will come at different levels, at different levels of maturity. But going back to my innovation definition, this customer's perspective has to be that this is something that is somewhat hidden from you. And in particularly in my space with um, autonomous vehicles at the moment, there's a lot of, oh, I'm scared. I don't let someone else drive me. How uh, yeah. I let a computer drive me. And effectively, you know, this is what I think not helping us in terms of educating the folks because if I go to O'Hare and I tell everyone at O'Hare that if you fly to Europe, the, that the pilot on a modern plane will fly the plane less than 45 minutes of the entire flight. And the rest of the time, the computer flies it. There will be a lot of people who will not get on planes anymore because they always <laughs> thought the pilots are flying. And yeah. then there will be people who say, well, at least there is a pilot there in case something goes wrong. And that's certainly one of the key roles that the pilots play uh, in today's systems. But then you see, so they, they fly themselves already. If you look at military, the military has drones now that don't only fly themselves uh, or fly remotely, but they are starting to make intelligent 
battlefield decisions, including collateral damage. So let's say it's being sent in to, to take care of a certain situation. And then as it flies in, the camera sees that there's a school bus next to the target that is about to explode a, a large de uh, detonation. It might decide to abort. It might decide to go to a second target. All these kinds of things with artificial intelligence, with machine learning are already in place. But, you know, my, my wife's family is from a small town outside of Krakow, uh, Poland, and there's still people plowing their fields with a horse. Right. So that doesn't mean the tractor hasn't arrived in the world. It just means this gentleman or this lady prefers to have still a horse or can't afford a tractor, right? Yeah. And so it, it, the answer to the question is why, it's, why I say it depends is because it will depend on what markets you're looking at. It will yeah. depend on what industry you're looking at. But this interconnectivity will start to happen. And by the way, it's not something where we need to wait for 5G. Whenever I hear these conversations about, oh, when is 5G ready, then all these things happen. This is not a 5G. Yeah. Let's wait for this kind of a conversation. There's a lot of things we can do today, in particular at the edge. If we stay out there, we don't even bring all these terabytes of data back to the mothership, whatever the mothership means, or HQ or some central server. If we can stay out there on the edge, and again, my brake pad talks to my lamppost, there's black ice, the temperature, again, contextual goes to 50 degrees. It's pretty safe to say there won't be black ice anymore if it's 50 degrees. By that time, the data could theoretically be deleted. So that also solves a lot of the big data problem of, you know, mm. I, I have too much data, I don't know what to do with it. And then if you want to then start writing into a, a DTLT, into a distributed ledger technology that there is black ice at Wecker in Michigan every single time when the temperature is below 30, then you can write that into that immutable yeah. data repository and maybe give it to the Chicago Department of Transportation. And then they can look at it and say, hey, maybe we can change something on the surface of the road or maybe there's some something else we can do because there's a recurring black ice problem at that specific corner. Or if it only happens once every blue moon, then we choose to ignore it. But these are not things that we need to, again, bring into a centralized environment. And then hopefully one day a data engineer has time to look at this or a data scientist and then we're completely out of context. Yeah. And I think everything is within context. And this is my favorite Freakonomics quote, you know, where there's a direct correlation between drowning deaths and the consumption of ice cream. And if I just tell you that, or I just teach my AI system that, then it will start looking, okay, what does drowning have to do with ice cream well the core the context is that there's much more swimming going on in the summertime than in the wintertime and there's also much more ice consumption going on in the summertime than the wintertime so yes. they are correlated but only because they both occur in the summer it's not causation yeah. exactly and so you, you have to start looking at data and, and really the value that it really brings and if you think of your own life first of all how much data you produce every day secondly who you allow this data to be monetized. And, and this is not just the Facebooks and the Googles, but they're certainly one of the folks that give you free Gmail, they give you free navigation services, etc. But how do they know that there's a traffic jam on the Eisenhower? It's because they pick up your phone data, my phone data, and your phone hasn't moved in an hour. It's pretty safe to say that you're sitting in a traffic jam. Right. And so it's always, and if we, create and this is maybe this question of what can i do with this information is 
start looking at your data as something that is A, of value, B, that is something that you should control. And this is our firm opinion that the data should be uh, owned and controlled by the person that generates it. And if that is a sensor, you could go back to this example of a uh, economic agent that's, that owns itself. Um, but for now, for the people, as a first step, that's a big, big discussion. And um, it's starting to happen because people get a little bit more sensitive about their data. But we have a very long way to go for that. And that will make the system of system ultimately work, is that uh, trusted data. Hmm. So then another question, I guess, that arises in my mind that how, how, how do you believe like ownership, data ownership will work then? Because, I, you know, obviously if you're sitting in a car and it's the brake pads detect that there's some black ice, it communicates to the lamppost. Well, is the lamppost owned by the same company that makes the brake pads, right? So like, how does this, and, and what can they collect and what can't, do you see some ways that that's panning out right now with data ownership and what can be used and all that stuff? So there is uh, already a big debates at the moment around if you lease or you buy a vehicle, who the data belongs to. And we all made the mistake of clicking accept when those long couple pages worth of terms and conditions right. pop up on anything that we do, right? And I, I actually read one of them. And it's quite interesting when you read it, this is for a Swedish manufacturer. And I like that example because it's uh, the Swedes are usually not being perceived as being threatening in any way, shape, or form, right? And this the, right. the Volvo guys are nice people, uh, as as most people are in this world. But if you read through the fine print, you start seeing that uh, there's a, a, a part that says, for example, that the data they collect, so they bring the data from the vehicle into the data center, will be shared with countries that are not living the same standards that we do in the United States, for example, in Europe, when it comes to data protection. And it's it's spelled out. But that doesn't mean that people don't use it or don't authorize Volvo to do this because we're still carelessly giving it away. Or in the customer's perception, this value that this solution brings uh, of the lane assist and of the cameras that are in the vehicle is perceived to be valuable enough that you're willingly giving up the data. And in Volvo's case, the data will end up uh, potentially in China because they're owned by a Chinese uh, company. And so uh, would you trust the same the data the same way if it went to China than if it goes to Sweden or if it stays in the United States? As far as the ownership is concerned, it's more, very unlikely that the lamppost will be owned by the same legal entity as yeah. the uh, brake pad. This is where this wallet comes into play. And so then the lamppost will pay maybe the the brake pad mm. for the service yeah. of this uh, detection of the black ice. Yeah. And then another thing which is interesting, that's also something that a local company here is working on in Chicago is your data in it by itself might not be very valuable, nor will be my data. But if your data is combined with my data and put into context, you could put that on a marketplace and someone buys that. So now you have a monetary transaction because someone perceives value for data that is based on your and my data. But again, individually, ours is worth nothing, but combined, it's worth something. Mm. How do I reward Josh and Joe? Yeah, Because without them, I don't have this data. Right. And, and so those 
kind of scenarios there will be again you know people start to look into these business models on how uh, this can be monetized and maybe some people will say now why do we care in my area of mobility uh, one of the things that we can see in you know Chicago like every other big city talks about equity a lot they we want to have everyone have the same access to public transportation to other things like you and I have okay so how do we do that if there's an underserved community, maybe I can offer monetarily free ride shares if I'm allowed to use the data. So in exchange, not for dollars and cents, but in exchange for your data, which again, Google would pick up automatically anyway, right. but now we're doing it differently because we're turning the table. You get to get to go to the city from an eight o'clock morning trip and you get home at five. So now all of a sudden we can get people that are currently not in the position to do this, you know, mm. to do this. And how many outpatient appointments are not being uh, honored because people can't afford the taxi fare right. to get to the hospital, things like that. So and we're starting to do some of those initiatives here in Chicago and in Illinois with uh, veteran hospitals, some other ideas that are being uh, worked on. And so this awareness is the step number one we have to understand it's like healthy eating there was a time when no one talked about healthy eating now we all read the label what is in our food we have to create the same sense of awareness that there's a there's a value that we have in this data and it is thousands of dollars by the way per year and then in exchange for this uh, data that i'm giving you again i control it and i can also withdraw my consent for you to use it. And this is a little bit like the GDPR uh, conversation that the Europeans are having at the moment where, you know, you, it's a law now that uh, you must disclose to me how you use my data. I can suspend my permission for you to use the data. I have the right to be forgotten. Imagine you out there uh, as a podcast li past listener and one of your customers comes to you and says, I want to use my right to be forgotten. Where would you even begin to look for mm -hmm. the data that you have, because I guarantee you, different silos sitting with your CRM system, with your email system, with your marketing, nice. da, 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 et cetera, et cetera, right? So the horse has left the barn on this, but we have to find a way to get it back. And it's for us to be aware is a first step. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the City of Chicago Mobility Report that uh, we created at the beginning of this year, you see data written all over it because we all have a consensus now that this is a very, very important topic. Again, trusted data. It's a very important topic for us to to tackle in the next couple of years. Mm. Wow! Yeah, data is the new, or trusted data is the new oxygen. Yes, That's definitely. I could see that. I mean, it's so it's so interesting how we blindly just agree to these things, and you, you list off all this data, and half the time I don't even think we think about it. Right? Mm -hmm. We don't think about all this data going back and forth. So, um, good stuff. Now, what would be some things that out of this conversation with these different systems and product systems, system of systems, and um, talking about data, what are some takeaways or a takeaway from a po the podcast listener standpoint would you, would you give? I think the first one is always to look at things from a customer's perspective. Um, uh, we see way too many times, look, I have a solution. And then when someone asks what was the problem, I'm still looking for the problem, but I have a solution to something. So look at it always from a perspective of, why does someone care about right. what I'm building? Uh, may, pay close attention to the trusted data aspect. Build your solution in such a way 
that you have a clear understanding how your data is being used and that it's being used in the most effective way and also in the most uh, non-personalized way as possible. Because there are certain things you don't need to know, right? I always use my driver's license example. If I go to the bar to have a drink, why does the bartender need to know that I'm an organ donor, where I live and how tall right. I am? They just need to know he's 21 or not, can this guy a drink or not, right? right? And so that how we deal with data. And then I think in the system of systems, I, you know, I like standardization. I think it's very important. Might it be the object management group or SA International, there's enough bodies that are working on ways to do things. But they all agree also that we have to be interoperable. Mm -hmm. So don't wait for a standard to emerge, and particularly in DLT, it's still very early. But make sure that you have an open system that is interoperable, that is able to talk to other folks. And then if you're technical, try to hide as much as you can the complexity of what you're building. You know, If you sit on this podcast and you can explain to me how your email works and how your website works and how a file transfer works over the internet, that's great. But there's a lot of people, including me, who are, I don't really care. I only care that it works. Right. I do know enough that I know it's not all the same, but that's all I need to know, right? And so I, I don't need to know that when I get on my plane to, to Germany that the pilots don't fly. I don't constantly remind myself. Uh, so there's a lot of things that can be hidden. The complexity is there but it can be under the hood, no pun intended. Right, right. Simple, make it look simple. Yes. Simplify. Yeah. Uh, well, I thank you, Josh, for doing this. I think asking an innovator uh, about ideas and sharing those ideas. I always enjoy listening to other people's mm -hmm. thoughts and opinions. And uh, this is a huge opportunity for all of us, you know, just to contribute, get these ideas into solutions that add value to our customers. And, uh, you know, look forward to uh, staying in touch. Yeah, likewise. I really appreciate your time, Joe. This has been another Ask an Innovator. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ask an Innovator. Visit us on our website, www.askaninnovator.com. This podcast has been sponsored by City Innovation Labs.